0: Hey listener, I shared an announcement with you a few months ago that I'd be publishing 10 new episodes of Digital Marketing Radio this year. Now that is still coming soon, but with a little twist. But I'll share the twist with you in a few weeks time. In the meantime, there's something else that I've been working on. You may well know that in the past I've also published a podcast called Business Book of the Month. Well that podcast is making a bit of a comeback. In the past few weeks, I've recorded two great interviews. Firstly, with former chief evangelist for Apple, Guy Kawasaki, and also with best-selling author, Ryan Levesque. So what I'm going to do is share the whole interview with Guy Kawasaki in this episode too. If you like this, and if you want to listen to the Ryan Levesque interview, which is going to be published in June, you'll need to subscribe for free to the Business Book of the Month podcast in your favourite podcatcher. To do that, just search for Business Book of the Month in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever Android podcast listening software you use, and hit the subscribe button. So let's get straight to it. Here's the Guy Kawasaki interview. This is the Business Book of the Month podcast, and today we're discussing Wise Guy, Lessons from a Life by Guy Kawasaki. Businessbookofthemons.com. Businessbookofthemons.com. I'm pleased to be joined by the former... Chief evangelist for Apple and current chief evangelist for Canva and brand ambassador for Mercedes Benz USA. Welcome, Guy Kawasaki.
1: Thank you. I, I don't have as impressive a background as you do, but
0: well, um, career-wise, you can certainly surpass that. But perhaps physically, at the moment, yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I meant the. Um the graphic background. Yeah,
0: absolutely, I got it, yeah.
1: You may have a better background than me in both regards, but okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You never know. Unlikely, but you never know. You never know.
1: You never know.
0: So, um, Guy, you famously like to make ten key points in a presentation. Yes. So, to celebrate the publication of your latest book, Wise Guy, Lessons from a Life Today, I'd like to ask you about ten key lessons that you took away from key stages in your life. I like it. Good stuff, okay. So, um, to get started, I'm going to go back to 1972. What were you doing in 1972? Yeah.
1: Oh, man. <laughs> my, uh, it was my senior year of high school, first year of college.
0: Indeed, yeah. You studied psychology at Stanford University yes. from 1972 yes. to 1976.
1: Well, I actually started in other majors, but I floundered for a while. Yeah. <laughs> well, I
0: guess not all of that's on your LinkedIn profile. but uh, No, we're, we're... <laughs> only the good stuff. <laughs> so, right, and anyway, we're looking back in the psychology degree, What part of that, what key lesson from that would you say you can take to your business life?
1: Oh boy! I mean, you're asking the relevance of one's formal education to business life. Well, <laughs> that's, well a very, that's a minefield. <laughs> I think, I
0: think. I mean, obviously, you were quoted. Um, I mean, this is going into my point too. Actually, you're quoted as saying that um, your MBA that you you also got after that is a hindrance to entrepreneurship. Um, but yeah. I, I was just wondering if you thought that psychology, to begin with, was uh, was useful for, yes. for business.
1: So, so certainly the aspects of social psychology a particularly social psychology by Bob Cialdini and the book called Influence, but uh, Influence and Bob Cialdini's work is in my background, but it didn't start in 1972. So I can't tell you that, you know, my psych degree as an undergrad transferred immediately to my career, but aspects of psychology, including the work of Bob Cialdini, definitely contributed to my career. So you could say that maybe my undergraduate degree was the foundation (laughs) that that led me to truly using social psychology.
0: So was that more useful than your MBA? I would
1: say so. You know, you have to go back in time. This is a long time ago. So (laughs) I got my MBA from 77 to 79 or something like that. And back then, an MBA was a fence you had to jump over to get to the next level of your career. And so, if you, particularly if you wanted to be in, in banking or consulting or you know large Fortune 500 brands, MBA was n- necessary. Fast forward to 2019, and you know maybe all of 2000s, uh, if you want to be in tech, you don't really need an MBA. So uh, I got a degree at a very different time.
0: Yeah, I've got an MBA as well. I got mine in 2005. And mm-hmm. I think the, the people that I met, the relationships that I made outweigh the the lessons that I was I was taught. <laughs> yeah. and, but 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 there were good people that I met and I, I, I certainly value that.
1: I I would say the same. I guess you could make the case, well just show up to all the parties at school. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> See, one other thing is, I, I noticed you did your MBA straight after, or almost straight after you finished your first yes. degree. Was that a mistake? Yes. And and would you have got more out of it if you'd gone uh, back to it seven or eight years?
1: So I, there was actually a gap year, and the gap year occurred because I went to law school right after I got my BA, and uh, I dropped out of law school. So there's a there's a gap of one year where I went and worked in in Hawaii. But with hindsight, I mean, generally speaking, I think it's better to have a gap of multiple years between undergraduate and graduate. But again, going back in time, back then, you know, people didn't value work experience as much. So, you you know, you went to undergrad, you went to grad, and maybe you went to PhD, and then you went into business. Today I think that is a different attitude, that truly to get the most out of an MBA, I would say you need to be out in the workforce for two to four years. However, having said that, if you're out of the work in the workforce for two to four years after your undergraduate degree, I think the probability of you going back for an MBA is lower.
0: So what are your thoughts on the, the future of university education? Do you think that the institutions as they exist at the moment will be teaching similar yeah. subjects in 10 years time?
1: I hope not. <laughs> I mean, I mean if, you know, you could make the case that the jobs that people who are getting an undergraduate degree today, the jobs that they will be holding ultimately don't even exist today. So I don't know how you, you know train for jobs that don't exist. But having said that, I could make the case that the purpose of an education is not to prepare you for a specific job as much as to prepare you for life. One aspect of life is employment, obviously. So to this day, I would highly recommend people still get at least an undergraduate liberal arts degree. Because it's better for your overall life than to go straight from high school to coding camp to start a company. I mean, yeah, you know, Steve Jobs can pull that off. Bill Gates can pull that off. Maybe Elon Musk can pull that off. But I'm running out of examples. You know, that's three. Um, I, I don't think you should say to everybody, oh, yeah, look at Steve, look at Bill, look at Elon. They did it, so you don't need to go to school. That would be a mistake.
0: So bringing a little bit more towards the present, your, your first real job <laughs> was the yeah. jewellery business from 1979 to, uh, to 1983. And yes. there your boss, Marty Gruber, had a tremendous yes. influence on you. So, so what was the yes. biggest life lesson that he taught you?
1: Well, the biggest life lesson that I learned from him and in that business was how to sell. The jewellery business, we were a jewellery manufacturer that sold to jewellery retailers. So you had to sell to the buyer of a jewellery store. And selling is a hand-to-hand skill, hand-to-hand combat, you know, in the trenches, mano a mano. And it was a very valuable thing, because I think for the rest of your life, many people have to sell. And not, not maybe in the commission sense, but sell in that you're always pitching, you're trying to get approval, you're trying to get, you know, appointments, it's, you're trying to get a job, you're trying to get a promotion, you are selling. The skill of selling is extremely valuable and probably underrated. I think uh, as I've gone in my career, I used to think that you know the hard part was coming up the idea, and then once you have this brilliant idea, the rest is easy. Well, come to find out, that's probably opposite. you know The easy part is the idea. The hard part is the selling and implementation of it.
0: Yeah, I love that. Um, my career path was fairly zigzaggedy, <laughs> to begin yeah. with. And um, that's because yeah. I was passionate about business, but I think I wanted to ensure that I learned the skills that I didn't feel that comfortable with. So I did sales yes. type jobs as well. And, and I'm, I'm really glad that I did too. So I like that answer. Cool. Moving on to 1983, you worked for Eduware Services, your, your first yes. tech job. And yes. b- before that, you didn't really work in technology. So what would your advice be today to someone who isn't working in tech that wants to get into that sector?
1: The advice that I have is, you know, just do whatever it takes to get in at any level. You know, in a perfect world, you'd have a PhD in computer science, and you know, you'll work for Google, Apple, Cisco, Pinterest, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, but this isn't a perfect world, and so I, I think I subscribe to the theory that the rising tide floats all boats. So if you want to get into tech, get in at any level, and you know, the day after you start a tech job. People don't really care if you have a 4.2 GPA from MIT or not, or they don't care if you work for 10 years for Google. All they care about is can you deliver for their company. So the key is to get in and get in at every level, at any level. And then if you get in at any level on the right boat, (laughs) on the right tide, life is good. But the key is to get in.
0: So if you're already working, if you're a few years into your in, your career and you maybe have over $100,000 a year that you're earning and maybe a sales job, and mm-hmm. but you're not so passionate about that, is it appropriate to take a big cut in salary to get onto that next stage in your career?
1: Oh, uh, I mean, uh, you know, it's easy for me to say, yeah, bite the bullet and do it. Uh, I don't know, if you have kids and you have student loans, I mean, maybe it's not so easy, but... I don't think anybody should answer that question for anybody else because that's a highly personal question and there's so many moving parts and so many variables, I I punt on that one. I think that that's such an individual decision but I I would say that it's not an obvious and quick no because you know when I went from the jewelry business to tech business I took a, a big pay cut. and the jewelry tide certainly did not rise as much as the tech tide. And so I floated on the tech tide. That was a very good decision in hindsight.
0: So after that, you started your role that defined your next few years, software evangelist Mm -hmm. at Apple. And Mm -hmm. your job there was to convince developers to create hardware and software products for a new company that had zero installed base, zero backwards compatibility, zero monthly sales. So how good is your reality distortion field?
1: Well, first of all, uh, that's not quite accurate, because when I joined Apple in 1983, it was already a successful company. You know, it had the Apple II. So, that's what you're talking about, right? Apple, right?
0: I'm quoting some of that from your LinkedIn profile, to be honest with you. But um...
1: to be more accurate, the computer, Macintosh, had zero sales, zero revenue, zero all that. But the company, Apple, was doing hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, of Apple II sales. So it's not that I, I joined a company with two guys in a garage, um, I joined Apple after Apple 2 had come out.
0: But you did find it um, that, that you're obviously competing with um, a Goliath out there. Um,
1: IBM, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and Microsoft,
0: yeah. What are the, some, of the, some of the lessons that someone can take from being such a small player in an industry where there's a, a massive player that um, seemingly owns everything and is just yeah. um, impossible to compete against?
1: Well, I think one lesson is uh, some things need to be believed to be seen. You know, so my job, and of course, myself, we believed in Macintosh, and it was my job to get people more people and developers to believe in macintosh so the lesson there is some things need to be believed to be seen as opposed to some things need to be seen to be believed and i also think that there's a statement there that quality does count it may not be as easy and as fast and as pervasive as you think but there are enough people who truly appreciate great quality Mm -hmm. and that was Macintosh. Uh, Macintosh never uh, achieved 90% market share, but it achieved, you know, five to 10% market share. And five to 10% of a of a rising tide is a <laughs> good little business. Uh, a lot of it is just taking risk and believing and hoping it
0: works absolutely and it wasn't their intention to have 90% market share they they wanted to have that 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 quality user base who would spend well,
1: more uh, <laughs> no believe me we had megalomaniac <laughs> desires for worldwide domination <laughs> We settled for ten percent or five percent. We didn't think. I I never thought it would be that small. Honestly.
0: Wow. Okay. Um, Nineteen (laughs) eighty-seven. You left Apple to start a Macintosh database company, and after that, you said that you listened to your own hype about opportunities in Macintosh software. Um, So, was it a good idea to listen to your own hype?
1: Ah, It depends on how you want to define good idea. Um, So that company, it did all right. It still exists. I never made, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars off of it. Uh, It was a great experience, my first true entrepreneurship experience. So, you know, those are the half full versions of that story, right?
0: Sure.
1: If I had stayed at Apple from 1983 till today, I'd be very wealthy. But uh, I didn't. And in fact, I quit Apple twice and turned Steve Steve down for a third job. So, you know, (laughs) I got three strikes against me with Apple. Uh, But you know what? I mean, everywhere I go, I meet somebody who says, yeah, you know, somebody from Google asked me to join and I thought it was stupid and and, uh, you just go down the line. I mean, if you, you can't exactly live your life saying, oh God, you know, if only I had known Apple would become this company, I would have stayed at Apple. Well, yeah, I mean, (laughs) if only we, if only we could foretell the future,
0: right? What year was it you turned them down for the third time? Oh God, it was probably 2000 or so. Okay. So they, what yeah. the iPad had just, or sorry, the 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 um, iPod had the just iPod, launched. Yeah. yeah,
1: I think so. Something around there.
0: Yeah, that was obviously just after him coming back, and um, I guess it's it was impossible to foresee what the company would become.
1: Well, I mean, listen, you know. It's easy to say now, but I'd like to—I'd like to meet all the people who, in in the year, you know, nineteen ninety-seven, when Apple was supposed to die, who predicted that someday it would be a trillion-dollar company. Yeah. Like, just line those people up and interview them, because you'll have a short list.
0: Well, you've got to go and do the thing that you're particularly passionate about as well, and you, you followed your heart as well, and done a lot of other great <laughs> things.
1: Uh, so I, yeah, but not as great as.
0: That. No, well, well, financially, perhaps, yes, but that's yeah. actually not. The only barometer of success.
1: No, it's not. It's not.
0: So, uh, 89 to 93, you wrote as a columnist for both mac user and MacWorld. world What can someone learn from your experience in doing that?
1: Well, you know, at that point, I was writer, speaker, that kind of stuff. Uh, I was really pursuing my bliss. There were there was a happy time. I mean, I don't I don't want you to think that you know all of a sudden I was uh, suffering. And I don't know one lesson is there is life after Apple that's for sure yeah. and it led to friendships and relationships for other companies and like like you said you know your, your path hasn't exactly a you know hockey stick up and to the right sure. and neither is mine so I, I think most people's lives are not anyway
0: yeah we're absolutely. the norm. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm I'm passionate about podcasting, online broadcasting, and that's brought me a couple of incredible opportunities to host shows for other people as well. Because I've been doing my own show, I, I didn't make money from my own show for a long time, but I I, I perfected or at least uh, improved my audio quality and video quality. And um, after a while, people come to me and say, "Well, can you do this for me as well?" Yep, yep. No guts, no glory. Indeed. <laughs> You went back to Apple, and um, this time as chief evangelist, and um, yes. so um, you say that your chief evangelist job description was to protect and preserve the Macintosh cult by doing whatever you had yeah. to do. Um, so what was the yes. biggest life lesson from that stage?
1: I think the biggest life lesson is that things are never as good or as bad as they seem. And From the outside looking in, you know, those were the days that Michael Dell was telling uh, Apple, well, you have two billion in cash give all the money back to your shareholders and close the company because there's no hope for you. Well, (laughs) I guess you were wrong, huh, Michael? So sometimes you just gotta believe again. And those are great days. Uh, You know, I I think maybe a similar situation is Tesla at any given moment, right? So Mm -hmm. at any given moment, people are saying, oh, Tesla, the Model 3 hasn't shipped in quantity, something's wrong, you know, another Tesla caught fire. People aren't buying EVs as much as possible. The, you know, Trump administration may remove the federal tax credit for buying an electric car, etc., etc. You know, like Steve Jobs, I would not bid against Elon Musk.
0: Did you ever believe what Michael Dell or other naysayers were saying about Apple at the time?
1: I mean, give back the money and close yeah, the shop. Yeah, give
0: back the money, never. or um, the, the the company's reached its peak, and um, you you can't possibly well, go much further.
1: I got to give you two conflicting answers, right? So I never truly believed that Apple was, you know, in that kind of trouble. On the other hand, I didn't believe enough at Apple to stay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so therein lies the contradiction. right? <laughs> well, um,
0: no, nothing's black and white. No. no. <laughs>
1: Nothing's green neither sometimes. (laughs) 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 Oh
0: okay, well let's move post Apple. Um after Apple you began a series of advisor roles a a a short time after that, advising firms like Stumble Upon, Motorola, Ustream. Um what's a common challenge that you see these rapidly growing tech companies face?
1: Yeah, well, uh first of all one should be so lucky that the challenge is rapidly growing. Okay. Mm, okay. (laughs) So I I think the the most common thing in all startups is achieving sales. And that sounds like a duism in the sense like, well, of course every startup has trouble achieving sales, but my theory is sales fixes everything, man. As long as you have sales, you are in the game and you can fix everything else. And so that's the challenge. And, you know if any entrepreneur tells you that his or her greatest problem is scaling fast enough I think you're talking to a liar I mean (laughs) you know if you have sales you will figure out a way to scale If you don't have sales, it doesn't matter if you know how to scale.
0: I suppose there's a lot of uh, dot-com companies, perhaps not nowadays, but maybe five to ten years ago, um, that did very well from a scale perspective, but didn't have a business model that could be particularly profitable. Um, So did you spend a lot of time thinking about business models and, and getting people to come up with better ones?
1: Listen, if somebody said to me, okay, so I have this company and we are just like adding tens of thousands of users every day, but we can't figure out how to monetize that. I would love to have that problem. And (laughs) that's not a hard problem to solve. Everybody's problem is, you know, we thought the software would be on time. It's late. We thought everybody would love what we're going to do. There'd be early adopters who would tell the main street and late adopters. And, you know, our biggest problem is scaling. You know, can we bring up the service fast enough in enough languages, et cetera, et cetera. I never have encountered that problem. So now having said that, I'm chief evangelist of a company called Canva. Mm. And Canva is close to what I just described. We are signing up tens of thousands of people every day. Across the world, and I don't know, like a hundred languages. Um, but we are scaling. Finally, at the end of my career, I, find, <laughs> I found this unicorn. That <laughs> that's the problem. Hallelujah! <laughs>
0: wow. I mean, I, I think I saw a post on LinkedIn recently. It was five million users. You've just surpassed there.
1: Uh, uh, it's way more than that. It's like t- more than double that now. Yeah. Okay.
0: Wow. Well, yeah. I mean, that's certainly an incredible number of users. And I've used Canva before, but um, I, I haven't used. The, the paid version before, so uh, I guess um, yeah. the the challenge is converting people to that, but once you get the users that are You know,
1: that's the kind of game we're in, right? So at the top of the funnel, tens of thousands of new customers are coming in every day. And at the bottom of the funnel, you know, we have to get enough people to either buy templates or buy photos or sign up for the enterprise version. But if you start at the top of the funnel with tens of thousands of new prospects every day you need to get a small percentage to achieve success at the bottom of the funnel. The problem is for most companies is that at the top of the funnel, they're getting hundreds or thousands of people per day, not tens of thousands per day. And so it is a, it is a funnel problem. <laughs>
0: So it's funny that you've come back to this job title chief evangelist, uh, almost yes. full circle, um, chief evangelist for Canva. It is, it is full circle. <laughs> Your brand ambassador for Mercedes-Benz USA as well. Yeah. Um, so what key activities would you say that chief evangelist role does that a modern business owner needs to be sure needs needs to be aware of yeah
1: so evangelism comes from greek word meaning bringing the good news and so that's what an evangelist does you bring the good news so i started my career bringing the good news of macintosh how it made people more creative and productive i'm ending my career as a chief evangelist of canva bringing the good news of canva because canva enables anybody to be a great graphic designer and we have you know we've created hundreds of designs for hundreds of categories. And the categories are presentations, posters, business cards, cards, flyers, social media graphics. And every one of those categories has hundreds of pre-done designs in them that you customize. And so think of Canva as Photoshop for the rest of us. That's good news, right? Mm. I mean, so you don't have to submit a project description. You don't have to look for a designer. You don't have to pay a designer. You don't have to revise with a designer. It's totally empowering for an individual to create great designs. So that's
0: evangelism, man. You can't have much better great news than that. It's certainly great being chief of marketing or um, (laughs) your chief evangelist for a company whose product is brilliant. Um, Would you say it's possible nowadays or will be possible in the future to conduct marketing campaigns for products that are inferior and expect to actually be able to make money through that or be successful through that?
1: Well, I mean, certainly it's helped in politics, but we won't <laughs> go down that hole. The, I call this guy's golden touch. And guy's golden touch is not that whatever I touch turns to gold. Guy's golden touch is whatever is gold guy touches and so I'll tell you, the key to evangelism is you evangelize something good because it's easy to evangelize something good. It's very hard to evangelize. Crap. So find something good and or create something good. That's the key. And now the, even that, that seems like a dozen. I'm like, oh, guy, thank you very much for that incredible insight because until I heard this this podcast, I was gonna find some piece of crap to evangelize, and now you tell me, oh, evangelize something great. But you know what? Inside that duism is some wisdom that you know the key to evangelizing something, the key to selling something is make something great. Everything else is easy after that.
0: We've covered ten kind of key points there. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Sometimes you have bonus. Tips in your presentations. So, what is one key? What's what, what's one key life lesson that we've missed?
1: Well, describe the sweet spot of your listener, and I'll give you a, a final tip here.
0: Well, the kind of business book of the month podcast is full of people that. Um, Probably have um, fairly recently established businesses that are likely mm-hmm. to be digital and online, and looking mm-hmm. for better ways of system systematizing what they do. So um, they've got a reasonably successful business up and running, uh, but they need to make it more efficient and um, profitable.
1: Okay, so the best tip I can give you is, you should always hire people who are better than you at the function you need, and. When you look around the room, you should look at everybody and say, "Okay, so that person is better than me in finance, that person is better than me in sales, that person in marketing, that person in social media, that person in engineering." And if you can say that that everybody's in the room is better than you, you have done a great job. And if you look around the room and you say, "I'm better than the finance person in finance, the marketing person in marketing, the engineering person in engineer, you are a loser." So always hire people who are better than you.
0: Superb stuff. Well, you've been listening to Guy Kawasaki, the author of Wise Guy Lessons from a Life. Guy, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thank you. I hope everybody at least considers reading the book because it took me about 40 years to write it. Wow. <laughs> It'll take you about two hours to read it, or three hours to read it. So you know, the, the goal of the book is for you to profit from my mistakes. So you, you don't repeat my mistakes, you do things more optimally and at least make different mistakes than I did.
0: Well, I was re- listening to it, actually, earlier on today, and um, I yeah. like the way that um, you're very fact-orientated, and um, <laughs> you, you jump from do this, do this, do that. Here's the lesson I learned here. There, there's no fluff in there at all, is there? It's just there's point no fluff. Point. No,
1: no, no, no. <laughs> this is not a... You know, I don't take 200 pages to tell you one idea. Okay, so there are 50, 60 ideas in there. Every one of them is tactical. It's it's not a book of visionary. You know, it's it's also not a feel-good book about you know believing yourself and look in the mirror and tell yourself you can. I'm not I'm not a cult you know, kind of motivational guy. Uh, This is all tactical and practical.
0: Lovely stuff. Well, uh, yeah, the book again, Wise Guy Lessons from a Life. Yeah, thanks again, Guy.
1: Thank you. Take care. Thanks for having me.
0: So I hope you enjoyed that. Remember, that was a one-off episode feature from the Business Book of the Month podcast. If you want to listen to more episodes like that, including a great interview with Ryan Levesque, which is going to be published in the next few weeks. Just search for Business Book of the Month in Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whatever Android podcast software you use and hit the subscribe button. In the meantime, make sure you stay subscribed to DMR as there are some more episodes coming here soon too. Adios.